Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Father, thank you for that old rugged cross. It's an amazing thing you did for us at Calvary. And we thank you for what you accomplished there, our salvation. And now, Lord, we get to live our lives for you. And we get to study your word and learn how your word applies to our lives. So, Father, now as we dive into your word, speak to our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, and build us. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Hope everyone's had a blessed week. It's been a very good week at the Ford home. Busy, busy, busy. That's the story of most of our lives with school back in and, and everything that's going on in our lives, school and work and, and church life. It's, it's very busy, very busy times. But if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning, we're... Um, looking at verses 12 through 20, 12 through 20. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. While you're turning there, I want to read to you a couple passages of Scripture. The first one is Psalms 96.3. Actually, I'm going to read Psalms 96.3 and 1 Peter 2.9. And they, the word says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. And then 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those two verses tell us a very important truth of Christianity and our service to the Lord. Psalms 93.6 says, we are, to de- we are to declare his glory among the nations. We are to proclaim what the Lord is doing in our lives and what he is capable of doing in other people's lives. And then 1 Peter 2.9, Peter echoes the same thought halfway through that verse. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You know, everything God does is excellent. He is a perfect God. He is omniscient, eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is perfect. And he knows exactly what his children need. He knows exactly how to take care of us. So the title of my message this morning, now to get your brain, get you thinking this morning, is, is the question is this, what makes Jesus great? What, what makes Jesus great? If you would for a minute, just think about that. And I want you to, if you, if you have pen and paper, I want you to jot down your pen and paper things that you believe that make Jesus great. Can you do that? Because then I want you to write down why you think, why you believe Jesus is great. And then we're going to look at the word. We're going to look at the word. And maybe at the end of the sermon, we'll see how many of yours lined up. There's many. And we're not going over them all. We're looking at the ones from verses 12 through 20. But let's see how close ours match. Sound cool? So what makes Jesus great? Either think about it or, or write it down. I got saved in 1992. One of the first Christian songs I ever heard was a a gentleman by the name of Lenny LeBlanc. And he wrote this song called, There Is None Like You. And it will melt your heart. Go to YouTube, type in Lenny LeBlanc, uh, There Is None Like You. A beautiful worship song. But that worship song, it goes like this. He says, There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search 
for all eternity long. And Lord, and find this, that there is none like you. Beautiful truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-11. through 11, And what did we see last week? We saw in Scripture that the, that the Scripture is sufficient for everything. We call it the, the doctrine of the, of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scripture is everything we need for life and godliness. And then in the second half of the passage last week, we saw the purpose of God's moral law. We saw the, the purpose of God's moral law. And now, God's law points us to the Savior. The sufficiency, the Scripture points us to the Savior. So now the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 12, he's going to bust into this glorious praise of who Jesus is. I imagine he's writing to Timothy, who's going to be the pastor at Ephesus, and Paul just has this Holy Spirit moment, and he's just inundated with the love of God and the truth of who Jesus is. And so he's just going to erupt into this praise of thankfulness in verses um, 12 through 20. So let's take a look at it this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. The scripture says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So the first thing the apostle does here in verse 12 is he expresses his thankfulness. He expresses, he's talking to Timothy, but he's expressing to the Lord how thankful he is. The New King James says that the Lord has enabled him. Many of your translations, instead of saying enabled me, say he has strengthened me. But it's the same thing. He's enabled him, he has, he has strengthened him, and he's given Paul everything he needs for life and godliness, is what Paul is saying. That the, the Lord, that the word of God, that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus himself has given him everything. You know, Paul endured a lot. Paul endured a lot. If you study the book of Acts, he took a shellacking. He took a whooping. He took a beating from the imprisonment and beaten at Philippi to being incarcerated at Caesarea to his two-year imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts chapter 28 to after the book of Acts, his second imprisonment in the maritime prison in Rome where he lost his life. He endured a lot. And Paul knew he couldn't do it on his own. What he needed, what Paul needed, was the supernatural strength and the power of God working in his life. And my friend, I'm here to tell you, based on his own testimony, he possessed it. He possessed the power and the strength. Uh, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has en enabled me. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, talking about the power of God in our life. He says, the scripture says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the, the power of God was in the Apostle Paul to do everything the Lord had called him to do. And my friend, that power is available to you and me today in 2019. That same power that gave him the strength, that gave him the stamina to do what God had called him to do was there. Philippians 4.13, one of our favorite Bible verses. Used to love seeing it on uh, Tebow's um, uh, little eyewear during the football games. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says, I can do all things through Christ 
the Lord Jesus Christ who enables me and who, who, who gives me strength. Now, this verse does not mean we're going to win every football game. It doesn't mean we're going to win every competition. But what it does mean, if you go back and study Philippians chapter 4, Paul was a very, at a very low point in his life. He was going through hard times. And he was saying, in these hard times, God has strengthened me. And he's given me the power I need to make it and, and to succeed. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It means whatever we face in life, God will provide the strength. God will provide the strength and the power for you to do his will. For you not only to do his will and do the ministry he's called you to, but to give you victory over the flesh and the carnal temptations that face each and every one of us every single day. He can give it to us. He will give it to us. But what we have to do is we have to open our hearts. And we have to say, I surrender. We can't trust in some prayer, sinner's prayer we said 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or 3 years ago. we got to say, Lord, I need you today. I need you today. With hands open, hearts open, Lord, I need you today. And he will do that. So the first thing on my list as we go through each of these verses, the first reason the first thing that makes Jesus great is this. His strength and his power is in us. His strength and his power is in us. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do, says Lenny LeBlanc. And his strength and his power is available. So that's verse 12. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, uh, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I want to start at the end of this verse. I looked at almost all your translations out there. All, most, 90% of the translations out there uh, say, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And I'm not trying to insult no one's intelligence. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to um, be rude or crude. But it's just a, it's not very wise to not follow Jesus. It's a very unwise decision it's, it's acting in ignorance. It's not a very smart move for people to reject Jesus. Because do you see everything he offers? He offers us his grace, his love, his mercy, his truth, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness. Who would reject that? But most of the time you talk to people, they, they don't want nothing to do with Jesus. And that is a very bad decision. That is a very ignorant decision. Paul, before he came to Christ, he says it right here in verse 13. He says he, 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 he did it. He acted in his sinful life because he, he did it ignorantly. Ignorantly in unbelief. So, so verse 13, the, the principle I see here of what makes Jesus great from verse 13 is this. His mercy toward us. His mercy. Jesus shows us mercy. He shows you and I mercy. Look at verse 13. Paul says he was a blasphemer. A blasphemer is one who takes God's name in vain. The third commandment says you shall not take God's name in vain. And he who uses his name in vain will not be held guiltless. God will hold people accountable for using his name in vain. And Paul did that. He, he, he blasphemed God's name. He says he was a persecutor. Uh, Paul, he hated Jesus. He hated Jesus he hated the church. I didn't write it down, but I believe it's in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the, the Lord's disciples. 
That tells you his heart towards Christianity. He wasn't, he wasn't just keeping himself from it. He says, I hate them, and I want to kill them. You know, Paul was there present at Stephen's stoning. Scripture says he gave wholehearted approval as they stoned and put Stephen to death. Put that Christian to death. That was Paul's heart. The New King James in verse 12, I didn't look with the other versions, but it says and he was a, an insolent man. It means he was, some of your translations probably say violent. That's what that word means. That Paul was a violent man. He was filled with rage. He was filled with anger. He's not somebody you don't want to hang out with. Because he was so angry at Christians. He was so angry at the church. And he did not like this gospel. Even we read in Acts that the early church, the disciples were even scared of him at first. They were scared of him at first because they were like, that's Paul. That's the one that, that, that's, that's going around and, and persecuting Christians and hating on the church. But over time, the disciples warmed up to Paul. And they welcomed him because they saw that he was, a, he was truly converted. But what does Paul obtain in verse 13? Halfway through the verse, it says, he says, but Paul obtained mercy. He obtained mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. I was 12 years old, walking down Big Hickory Lane in Gaston, South Carolina, 12 or 13 years old playing with matches. There was a bunch of, a lot of dry weeds around. That was not a good idea. That was not a good idea. Pastor David, at age 13, set the woods on fire. Police, the fire, fire department came. This, is, this really did happen, 83, 84, somewhere around there. If I set the woods on fire, the fire department had to come out and uh, dig a trench in the woods to stop the fire, contain it, and put it out. When I got home, I made a second mistake. I didn't tell my mom and dad the truth of what happened. And me and my dad, we did the merry-go-round. You ever heard of the merry-go-round? It's where they, he's, got one, he's, got, he's, he's got one arm in this hand, he's got the belt in the other hand. Pow, 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 pow. And I got beat. Not only because I put the wood, set the woods on fire, not because the woods on fire, but because I lied. I didn't tell him the truth. Five years later, we moved, we moved out to Valentine, out off of Ken Weber Road. And I set the kitchen on fire <laughs> by accident. I had put some of that Crisco grease in the pan and had it melted. You know, it has to melt first before you dump the fries in there. Well, I put the Crisco grease in there, and I went and lived in the watching TV. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I smell something. And I see smoke bellowing out of the kitchen. <gasps> I go running in there. I go, I go running in there, and the kitchen is on fire. I run out, get the water hose, call the fire department. I'm sitting there spraying the kitchen. Thankfully, it did not get into the attic. It just ruined the ceiling and the cabinets. And when my dad got home, I knew I was going to get a beating. I knew he was going to wear my tail out. I was bracing. I was like, you need to get some padding back here. This is going to hurt. But I, but I remembered what happened with the woods fire, and I told my mom and dad the truth. I told my mom and dad the truth. I told them exactly what happened, how I made a mistake, and guess what? I did not get a spanking. My dad showed me mercy. My dad showed me mercy. See, we deserve 
judgment. We deserve judgment for our disobedience before the Lord. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. We know it's wrong to break God's moral law. But in our sinful fallen state, in our carnal minds, sometimes we rebel. Sometimes we rebel. And before we came to Christ, we spent a life of rebellion. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says that you and I, it says that we were enemies of God. It says, Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, it says we were enemies of God by, by our evil deeds. But then when we came to the Father and we came in honest sincerity and told the Lord the truth and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've broken your law. I'm sorry I've broken your commandments. Please forgive me. You know what the Father does? He does not punish you. His judgment does not come. Guess what comes? Your, his mercy. His mercy, his love, and his truth, and his grace. Our God is a God of reconciliation. He's a God of mercy. You know, many people make the mistake, and don't do this. Many people make the mistake of letting their past define who they are today. They think about their past failures, their past sin, their past mistakes. My friend, if you've come to Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Psalms 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from us. The Apostle Paul, he says in verse 13 of your Bible, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and and an insolent man. I I was an angry man. But Paul did not let that past define his life. He let Jesus define his life and the new life he had. Paul didn't let it go against him. Don't you either. And don't I either. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. A new creation. We we, we stand there. So God shows us mercy because we come to him honestly. Romans 5, 8 says, "But, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God delights in mercy. James, the, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle, he, says, he even says that uh, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. His mercy triumphs over judgment. When we come to him and we're honest and say, I'm sorry, I blew it. Amen? So number two, the second thing that makes Jesus great is his mercy. His mercy is... is, is an amazing truth of who our Lord and Savior is. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, I don't care how dark your past is, he is merciful and he shows love and he shows grace no matter what. Let's look at verse 14. Number, verse 14, we're going to see number three. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Number three, the third thing that makes Jesus great here in verse 14 is this. His grace is amazing. His grace is amazing. Uh, Paul uses this phrase here to talk about grace. He says, in the grace of our Lord, grace is the object. And he says, how does he describe grace? He says, exceedingly abundant. That phrase, exceedingly abundant, in verse 14, means that God's grace is, is, is poured out. It means God's grace is is poured out, 
It's overflowing. Imagine a cup, and you're filling it up with water. And you get the top, and you keep filling it up, and you keep filling it up. What happens? It just spills out. It just spills out. And that's, and that's also similar to how the Holy Spirit operates in our life. Para in epi. Those are the Greek words the New Testament uses to describe how the Lord works by the Holy Spirit in our life. Para means the Holy Spirit is with you. Para, then the word in, E-N, means he's inside you. And then epi is the Greek word. means that the Holy Spirit is overflowing. Is overflowing. And the same can be said of his grace, according to verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love. In other words, God gives you the faith to believe. God gives you the faith to believe. He gives you the love in your heart. Paul was an angry man, a mad man. Many of us come to Christ angry and bent with hearts of evil. And then what does God do? He replaces it with love. Love for him and and love for each other. So his grace is amazing. What is grace? I love Exodus 34, 6. If you've been around Calvary Chapel any amount of time, I always refer to this verse from the Old Testament when we're talking about grace. But what is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. We all know that. That's a very common uh, definition of grace, and it's true. But Exodus 34, 6 says this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. Grace is the compassion of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, the loving kindness of God, the truth of God, God's unmerited favor. And these these are the things in this verse that grace brings into our lives. It brings in that loving kindness. It brings in that faith. It brings in that compassion. It brings in that truth. That's what makes grace amazing. God's unmerited favor. And not because you deserved it, but because it's part of God's character, and that's who he is. He gives it to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is amazing. Grace is amazing. So many times in church, that word grace becomes like wallpaper. Let it not be so at Calvary Chapel. Let us celebrate and be thankful for grace. And let us pray for our friends and our loved ones and our students and all the people we reach out to, the people at the nursing home we went to yesterday and spoke with, that, that grace envelops their heart. Grace and truth. So uh, number three is, is uh, his grace is amazing. Let's look at number four, four uh, verse 15. Verse 15, the, the, Paul is, this is like a, a prophetic utterance, a statement, a song that Paul is making as he's closing out chapter one. But he says this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am a chief. Wow. Wow. What makes Jesus great? According to verse 15, his mission. He came for all. He came for all men. That's, probably, that's, that's one of the most profound statements in all of the New Testament. That you could just circle that. Halfway through verse 15 where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his mission. That was his mission. I want to read to you the King James Version of John 3, 16. 
It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, I love this, the word here, whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is there anybody outside of the redeeming work of the Lord? Is there anybody that, 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 that God will not save if they'll come to him in faith? Is there, is there anyone? And the answer is no. This grace goes out into all the world through preachers, churches, missionaries, evangelists. And this is the, this is the mission that Christ came for you. Christ came for you, but you have to respond in faith. There's no one outside. John the, John the Apostle confirms this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So, who is Christ for? He's for all people. And, and, it's, and it's their job to repent and believe. It's our job to share the good news. But there's nobody, I don't care who they are, who they identify is, or, 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 or what they look like, or what they've been through, or what their past is, Christ came into the world to bring salvation to them. Verse 16. Paul's reflecting on himself here. And, and, and Paul's going to, he, he sees himself. Remember back, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention it, but at the, at the end of verse 15, he says, because he's playing off of that phrase as he's going into verse 16, but in verse 15 he says, whom I am the chief. I am the chief of sinners, is what Paul says. And all Christians, all pastors like to say, this is the one Bible verse I disagree with. When Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, because we like to say, no, you're not the chief of sinners, I'm the chief of sinners. But, Paul is saying, but Paul's making an example of himself here in verse 16. He says, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Again, Paul writing here, he sees himself as the chief example. He sees himself as the, uh, the chief of sinners. And he's like, he, he, he says what most of us would say, if God can save me, he can save anybody. He can save anybody. Remember, uh, Paul despised Jesus. He hated Christians. I, th I talked about it a while ago. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says he was bringing out murderous threats. So it's interesting how God reaches down in the first century and he goes for the vile one. He goes for the one that's bent against him. As he's on the road to Damascus, he sees this bright blinding light. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says to him, hey, I'm going to save you. And now you're going to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. You're going to suffer greatly, Paul, but I'm going to be your source of strength. I'm going to be your source of power, but I'm going to send you to the Gentile world. I'm going to save the wretch of wretch. And he does that today. He does that today. He's, he, he, he likes to save the most vile people so that he can display his glory and display his grace around the world and say, wow. If that person can get saved, anybody can get saved. 
Go with me for a moment here. Think about the most ruthless person you know. I'll give you a second. Think about the most ruthless, vile, evil, wicked person. Maybe it's somebody who's been in the news. Maybe somebody's created a heinous crime. Maybe somebody's on death row or just done something that's just unthinkable, that's unthinkable, that's unimaginable. Think about who that is. In our culture, in our world, we desire, you and I, let's be honest, you and I, the world, we desire revenge. We desire punishment. We desire death. We want justice. What does God desire? Mercy. He desires mercy for that person that you're thinking of. He desires mercy for that person that I'm thinking of. You know what that's called? It's called grace. It's called grace. It's called grace. If you and I believe there's a person on this earth that does not deserve grace, then you and I do not understand grace because that's God's grace. That's God's redemption. That's God's plan. doesn't matter what they've done. doesn't matter who they are, how bad. God delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. God doesn't have, doesn't have different scales for sin. Well, this sin is this up here and this sin is here. Sin is sin. And he delights to show mercy. He delights to show grace. And you and I do very well to put on that same mindset and see the world through that lens. Look at the world around you through the eyes of grace. Through the eyes of grace. Don't look at the world as what's going on and how bad things are. Look at the world as how God looks at it and what he can do through those people, in those people, when we take the gospel, when we minister to people. That's how we do it. It's through grace. Let's look at number five in verse 17. What makes Jesus great? Um, yeah, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I imagine as the apostles write in this statement, the hair on the back of his neck is standing up. He's not, he is not worried about his impending death. He's not worried about all the negative and the things that are happening to him physically. He's just in this euphoric praise to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here in verse 17 is what makes Jesus great is this. He is the eternal God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus Christ, and then it talks about Christ Jesus. What's the deal with that? Why does the Bible, when the Bible refers to Jesus Christ, a lot of times it's in reference to his earthly uh, ministry when he, when he was here on earth. But a lot of times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will flip that, and he'll say, Christ Jesus. And what he's doing is he's putting his, his heavenly title, he's putting his heavenly title in front of his name to exalt him and to praise him that he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, exalted at the right hand. So it's a way of him giving him praise. And now he says here, um, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone is wise, be glory and honor forever. 
He's talking about Jesus. He's specifically speaking of the Son of God here, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've heard that phrase. You don't see it a lot anymore. A lot of churches used to have it in banners. We called it, uh, he was the king of the ages. He's the king of the ages. In other words, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, being the king of the ages, being the king eternal, immortal, invisible, he's never subject to death. He's never subject to death. Matter of fact, he has neither beginning nor end. He's eternal. Who created God? That's the big question people like kids like to ask, and it makes say, "Who? How do you answer that question?" There's a very simple answer: Nobody created God. He dwells outside the realm of time and space in what we call eternity. You know, he has neither beginning nor end. You know, do you find that hard to wrap your mind around? Welcome to the club. Yeah, that's God. Exactly. That's, you know, if, if there was an answer, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to call him God. But welcome to the club. He's eternal. Paul's going to reference that at the end of this book. In 1 Timothy, he's going to close this book that we're studying now with this phrase again. 1 Timothy 6.16. It says, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and, and eternal dominion. Amen. You know, there's this thing theologians call it. They, they talk about God is transcendent. And when they use that phrase, what they're saying is he's separate from the universe. He's separate from creation. And that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around because we live in a physical world. But he, God, dwells in eternity. He dwells in eternity. He dwells in that place that is above and beyond this outside the realm of our thinking because we've never been there because all we know is is planet earth and all we know is the world but he dwells in eternity and jesus christ is the second member of the trinity the father the son and the holy spirit and they are eternal immortal invisible matter of fact it was our lord and savior jesus christ that the scripture says it was through him the worlds were created He was there at creation. He is our creator God. And because he's creator God, we bow our knee before him. We bow our hearts before him because he is due that reverence because he is Elohim. He is God. He is the Lord. So those are the five reasons I present to you this morning. How did you do on on your thoughts on what makes Jesus great? His strength, his power, his mercy, his grace, his mission, and his deity. That's what makes the Lord Jesus Christ great. And that's what Paul is bringing home here in in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So now, after Paul's going into this uh, praise of the Lord, now he's going to be like, okay, Timothy, let's do business. Let's do business. So let's look at Paul's charge to Timothy as he transitions at verse 18. And he says it there in verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you. I'm just going to stop right there. Basically, Paul is saying to Timothy, dude, you got to get a hold of this. This is your mission. This is your job. We know from earlier in this chapter that the mission, the reason why Paul is writing to Timothy is because he's sending Timothy to Ephesus to get things right. Because according to verse 3, some false teachers had crept in. False teachers had crept in, and they were teaching other doctrine. And in verse 3, Paul says to uh, Timothy, go to Ephesus and get things right. Get back to the Bible. 
So he says, this charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You know what he's saying there? Paul, excuse me, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you're going to Ephesus, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be some fighting. There's going to be some wrangling. It's not going to be an easy task. But what he's saying here is, Timothy, you're going back to Ephesus, and I need you to go back to Ephesus and defend the faith. To defend the faith. The early church fathers, early church history tells us that after um, the book of Acts, that um, Timothy became the pastor at Ephesus. And here, we're given insight. This was most likely the beginning of that calling where Paul is sending uh, Timothy to Ephesus. But But this fight, he's to expel the false teachers. He's to expel the false teachers. He's to, um, to get rid of this unbiblical teaching. If you go back and look at verse um, 3, go back and look at verse 3 in the same chapter, it says, And I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And what he's talking about there is simply teaching the scriptures. And now Timothy's got to go back to Ephesus and get it right and to get them back to Scripture, to get them back to being founded on the rock of the Word. You know, we Christians, we have a fight today. We have a fight today. It's threefold. Our fight today is, number one, we're here to defend the truth of Christianity. That's, that's every believer's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the leader's job. But it's, it's the job of every believer to gracefully stand and defend for the truth of what scripture says Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints if you hear something that's like oh that don't sound right most likely it's not you know if it doesn't line up with scripture you know if it lines up with the word we we accept it but if it doesn't line up with scripture we 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 reject it but we stand for the clear straightforward principles of orthodox biblical Christianity. And Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He is not a man. He was born of a virgin. Okay? He was born of a virgin. He did live a sinless, perfect life. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't wiggle on those. The virgin birth, the sinless, perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of Scripture. We don't stand on this because those are our foundation. That's the rock we stand on. That's, that's our grounding. And Ephesus had got away from that. And Paul sending Timothy to Ephesus to get them back on that foundation. Our second fight that we face today, here in 2019, it, 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 our fight today is we do not give in to our carnal, sinful nature. You know, we are one day away from falling away. Do you know that? I, I read recently there's some very popular Christians that have renounced their faith and have fallen away from the Lord. And I was reading an article by John Piper, and John Piper says this. John Piper, now you may know John Piper. He's a very well-known preacher. He's, he said in response to that, he says, I'm one day away from falling away. 
I have to stay in the word, is what, is what John Piper said. And same with you and I, that we don't give in to our, our carnal nature or, or, or unbelief, but we got to stay in the word. we got to stay in the word, and we got to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us and not give in to the desires of the flesh. I get tempted every week, as, a, as well as I'm sure each and every one of us here we get tempted with our carnal flesh. That is a fight. That is a fight for the believer today. You know, I have, I have uh, people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. You know, and, and I'll ask them, are, are, are you in a fight? Are you in a struggle? I'm like, yes. Good. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Because temptation constantly bombards us constantly comes at us and what we have to do is just buckle the chin strap surrender to the holy spirit and say lord help me help me not to give in to my carnal flesh help me not to believe the lies of the enemy help me to maintain my faith in you help me to walk with you that's the fight we face that's the fight we face you know there's no one there's no one that's beyond temptation. There's no one that can say, well, that won't, that won't affect me. You know, take heed lest you fall. And so it's very important that we fight the good fight. We fight the good fight. So the first fight today is we de- defend the truth of Christianity. Second one is we don't give in to the carnal, our carnal nature, our sinful uh, ways, our old, our, pa- our past ways. But the third fight we fight today is we fight for the souls of men. We fight for the souls of men. You know, as long as we have breath in our lungs, it's our job to, to take the gospel. Take the gospel to our family members. Take the gospel to our neighbors. Take the gospel to the people around us. And to show them how great Jesus is. We don't want you to get religious. Don't get religious on us. And don't get filled with tradition. And don't get, don't get inundated with churchology but be filled with the Lord and walk in his strength his power, his mercy, his grace evangelism, exalt him as the eternal God that is our fight today and that is the fight we will win because Jesus Christ leads us he leads his children in victory so we we are called to fight the good fight Timothy's got a big fight he's going to get things right at Ephesus Let's continue. Let's finish this up. Verses 19 and 20. It says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. So we're to have faith. We're to have faith. You know, as Christians, we're called to have faith. We're called to have faith in God, but we're also called to have faith in the promises of the Lord. And everything he's given us in his word, we're called to have faith. And then it says we're called to have a good conscience. That means inside of our hearts, we make the right decision. The word conscious means with knowledge. It means with knowledge. So we're to have knowledge that what we're doing is right. We're to have faith and to have good conscience. But when we get away from these things, when we get away from from, from, from scripture, from uh, walking in faith, and, and from having a good conscience. Look at verse 19. 
He says, which some have rejected concerning the faith and has suffered shipwreck. How did this shipwreck occur? How did um, these people shipwreck their faith? The, the word tells us they, they abandoned the faith. It was once and for all given to the saints, given through scripture. They did things from a bad conscience, meaning they had knowledge that things were wrong, and they did those things that were wrong. And then you go back in the context of chapter 1, you go back to verse 3, they were bringing in false teaching, and they were bringing in other teaching. And when you do this, when you, when you abandon the word of God, things are going to go amok. Th- things are going are, are are to be shipwrecked. Th- this is our anchor. You know, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And it builds us up. That's what's happening right now. The Lord in your hearts as we study the word right now, he's doing things in your heart and mind as we speak. And he's building you up on these foundational truths. Not because of their pastor David's thoughts, but because they're coming from scripture. And that's how the Lord works. Then he says in verse 20, he says, of whom, as we finish up this last verse, of whom are Harmonius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We know very little about these guys. There's, there's very little information other than what we can pull from the text of chapter one, that they abandoned scripture, they didn't have faith, they didn't have a good conscience. But he says, I del- he says, whom I, Paul says I, not the church. Paul says, when I was there, I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What in the world is this, Pastor David? What do we, what do we deliver people to Satan? Is that, what is he saying? What, do, what he's talking about here, he's talking about church discipline. What he's, talking, he's talking about church discipline. And what he's saying is he's, they've taken these false teachers and they've removed them from the church. They've removed them from the church so that they can't infect the body of Christ. What does that say to us today? That talks to us. That tells us the importance of Scripture. That that, that tells us the importance of um, of sound doctrine. That, that he says, "Whom I delivered to Satan." In other words, he put him outside the church, put him out of the world. Hey, you cannot come back till you leave that stuff behind. You can't come in here and, and espousing those things. And then they may not learn. Excuse me. And they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, evidently, they were using God's name in vain. They were misusing his name. They were uh, misusing his word. And, and that's a very bad thing. That's, that's a very bad thing. What, we don't, what I don't want for you guys, for every believer that comes to Calvary Chapel, I want your faith to be built up. I want your faith to be strengthened. What I don't want is to see people get amok. I don't want to see people shipwreck their faith, but we want to build people in their faith and encourage them in their faith. Amen? So I'm going to pray for you guys now. And uh, be encouraged. Jesus is great. He is mighty. He is powerful. And he is all these things in our life. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word from 1 Timothy. 
Thank you for um, just the clear, straightforward truth that you are great. And Paul erupts into this praise to show us how great and how magnificent you are. Lord, if there's any of us here that we struggle with this, Lord, we, we struggle with finding joy, we struggle with finding excitement, we, we struggle with just not having zeal, Lord, I pray that you'll remind us this morning of these clear truths of how great you are. Father, encourage your people, strengthen your people, and let us walk out of here with the joy of the Lord, knowing that you are strength, you are God. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.